All right, good morning. Let's go ahead and get started this morning. Um, just have a couple quick things uh, to, to mention. First of all, it, it's in there about daylight savings time, so that'll switch over next week, right? So just keep that in, in mind uh, so that everybody's here on time. Um, and then also um, just want to encourage you, in our business meeting Wednesday night, we voted to take on, hopefully most of you all remember Josh who was here. Uh, he's going to, Joshua Hutchins is going to Malawi and uh, is going to be serving there, trying to train and equip the pastors who are already there. And so God has blessed us and we're going to be taking him on for support uh, for $100 a, a month. So that was something encouraging that came out of our, our business meeting this past Wednesday night. So that's all I have at this time. Jared, you go ahead and come and open our service. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Just as we uh, as we come together this morning, I would like for you to turn to Psalm 26 with me. We'll read the entire psalm, but I do want to just say that if you're on the membership recovery team and you can stay a few minutes after church, I would like to meet again and uh, get that process rolling a little more formally. So uh, if you've got a few minutes, we'll just meet in uh, my Sunday school classroom uh, following the service. Psalm 26, it's a psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, I just want to thank you for your word. I'm thankful, oh God, for those who have gone before me and have wrestled through their faith and, have, and you have faithfully preserved some of those wrestlings and some of those rejoicings, God, as we see here today. And, and it allows us as a people to just give vent to what we feel in our hearts, God, and express what's in our souls. And we thank you for the, the giftedness that David had in expressing what was in his heart, God, because oftentimes we find ourselves in his words. And God, we praise you and thank you and glorify you for, for your words. We're thankful, God, not only that they encourage us, that they, that they teach us, that they lift our souls, but God, we thank you that they are the words that reveal salvation to us because without them, we would be lost. Without a positive message of truth, without a spoken word, a written word, a gospel message being proclaimed, God, we would never see and savor Jesus Christ. But because you have deposited your truth and preserved that truth and, and, and given that truth to us in our day, in our generation, God, we hear and, and understand the gospel. And God, I pray that we would believe the gospel this morning 
God, as we read through this psalm and we look to some of the things that are going on there, I just would pray in, in response to this psalm that you would instill in us a holy hatred of sin. God, very clearly, that's the hatred of sin and not sinful people, not sinners, but sin. And God, more specifically, instead of externalizing that, help us to hate our own sin. God, help me to see the wickedness that broods in my own heart, the darkness and defilement of my own mind, instead of trying to find problems in everybody else's faith or everybody else's practice or everybody else's lives. Help me, God, to look at what displeases you about my own life. God, to remove the log from my own eye before I dare try to take a speck out of someone else's. God, help us not to be hypocrites. Help us not to be people who point the finger and wag the tongue at others because of that sin and that sin and that sin, who fail to see the wickedness and the sinfulness and the lack of love and the lack of joy or even the hypocrisy that camps out in our own hearts and minds and darkens everything that we say and taints it, God, and causes people to recoil. God, I pray that that would not be the case. Instill in us again a holy hatred for our own sins. And God, forgive us for our sins because we are worldly. We, we compromise truth all the time, God. We walk into sin. Sometimes it's a, it's a mistake. And other times we, we boldly walk into sin when we shouldn't. And, and God, I pray that you would forgive those things, that you would forgive the compromise that we make with, with the world, God, the worldliness that we invite into our hearts and our minds and into our churches and into our homes. God, forgive us for the hypocrisy that often spreads through our lips, God, and the complacency that we feel uh, toward the things of God. Forgive us, Lord, because our sins are many. But thanks be to God that your grace is ever abounding, that your grace is exhaustless, that your grace, Lord, and, and, and when David says he walks in faithfulness, God, that's faithfulness that you supply. We cannot and will not be faithful apart from the help of the Spirit. And so we pray for that today. Help us to boldly claim uh, proclaim life through the words of the gospel, the good news of salvation, God. Help us to, to not just live lives that are good, but to preach a gospel that is good, to spread a message of salvation to those who are lost and those who need it. And God, let us not be like Peter who would withdraw from sinful folks, but God, that we would be like Paul who presses in to deliver that message and that we would not, that we would not draw back. And God, finally, we pray that you would protect us as we gather for worship Protect us, God, not so much from threats from without, though they are growing in our country, but God, protect us from threats from within. All those little ways that our unity is disrupted, all those little ways that our hearts are distracted, all those little ways that we check out and don't fully engage in worship, that we don't engage in the giving of our money and tithes and things for the service of the kingdom, and we don't actively listen when the word's being preached. God, forgive us for those things and help us. Protect us from such pitfalls, God, as we gather here and help us to live on mission for your kingdom. We ask these things by the help of the Spirit and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that ever pleads before your throne. Amen. And if you would, grab your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 15. And uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 5. 1 Kings 15, 1 through 5. And uh, I'm preaching this morning um, in, in 1 Kings primarily because I want to invite you all uh, to be part of our, our Wednesday night. Um, in, in a couple weeks, we're, we're finishing our men's and women's Bible study that we've got going on. 
and uh, and we're going to be transitioning back into another Bible study that will be all of us together, all the adults. We'll still have our prayer time, but then we're going to be going through just the kings of, of Israel uh, and, and looking at their lives and things that God is, is teaching us through that. You know, one of the things that is really just a sad testimony of where the church is today, and I don't mean just our church, I mean the church at large, uh, one of the, the sad things about this is, is, is that so many of us don't know that we don't know our Old Testament. You know, th- this is a crucial thing. We, we ought to know what's happening in the Old Testament. We ought to understand it. When, when Paul wrote in, in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the, the all scripture that he's talking about, I think it includes the New Testament, but the New Testament was just being written at that time. He was talking primarily about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is written by God. It is inspired, breathed out by God, and, and it's profitable. It's pro- profitable for our doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in, righteous, in righteousness. And sadly, so many in the church in our day and time just simply do not know their Old Testament. Another important reason we need to know the Old Testament is because Jesus came as a fulfillment to the Old Testament. There are all kinds of promises, and there's a storyline that's leading up to Jesus. Jesus didn't just drop out of the sky with with no history and no context. All the context of the Old Testament helps us to better understand who Jesus is, why we need Jesus, why we need this Messiah, and what he came to do. And so you cannot fully appreciate who Jesus is if you don't know the Old Testament. So that's what we're doing on on Wednesday night. I'd encourage you to come and be part of that. And uh, this morning, I just want to look at at 1 Kings, which will be one of the books that we'll be looking at on on Wednesday evenings. 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning at verse number 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His, mother na- his mother's name was Mekah, the daughter of Abi Shalom, and he walked in all the sins that his fathers did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting him up, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. And then this is what we're going to look at this morning and just focus and meditate on this last phrase of verse 5. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now, a little bit of background, because perhaps for some of you, you don't know the Old Testament well enough. So just a little bit of background. David was a good king in in the life of Israel. He was the second king of Israel. He was, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. He served the Lord. Uh, He he encouraged the people to serve God. uh, Jared read earlier a psalm of David. Uh, David wrote many psalms encouraging people to worship and serve the Lord. And we know after him, uh, David's son Solomon was, was the next one. He was a wise man. He asked the Lord for wisdom, and the Lord blessed him. Uh, and throughout most of his life, Solomon did what was right in God's eyes, and God 
greatly blessed him. He built this great temple and, and the Lord gave him peace from his enemies and all of these things. But Solomon made a, a crucial mistake. He began to marry wives, uh, multiple wives, which was problematic in and of itself, uh, but he married wives from the foreign nations. And the reason that was so uh, important and the reason that was problematic in the life of Solomon is because these women worshipped and served other gods, and so he was bringing idolatry into the land of Israel, and ultimately his own heart was led away from the Lord into idolatry. As a result of his sin, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse number 9, the Lord says this to him, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servants. So the nation of Israel was unified at that moment with one king ruling over all of Israel. Uh, but, but God said, now because you have multiplied wives and you have taken wives who led you into idolatry and you have followed them into this idolatry, I'm going to tear this kingdom away from you. I'm going to take it away from, from your son and it's going to be divided. But he made, he made two concessions even in that, in that punishment of Solomon. Number one, he waited till his death. Uh, so this didn't happen in his life. Uh, and then the second thing was he said, I'm going to let one of your sons uh, reign over Judah, which was one tribe of Israel. So the rest of Israel is going to follow another king, uh, but, but your son will reign in Jerusalem over this one small tribe of Judah. So there's a divided kingdom. And the rest of the Old Testament from that moment forward is a divided kingdom. There's a civil war. There's, there's uh, the, the people uh, follow a, another king. And that's exactly what happens. Solomon's son... Rehoboam, so David's grandson, comes to the throne and the, the nation of Israel, the people, the elders of all the different tribes come to him. They say, look, your father put a great burden on us and, you know, we built this temple, but we just we need this burden to be eased. And so Rehoboam went to his counselors, the counselors who had been his father's counselors, and he said, what what do you think I should do? And his his father father's counselors said to him, look, they're right. Your, your father did lay a heavy burden on them. He required a lot of these people. You, you would do well if, if you just lighten this burden a little bit, uh, give them a little, a little breathing room here. They will follow you. And, and, uh, but Rehoboam was a young man, and he did as young men sometimes do. He listened to the foolish counsel of his friends uh, who said, no, this is what you need to tell them. Say, the, the burden that my... Uh, that my father Solomon put on you was like my little pinky. It's nothing compared to the burden that I'm going to put on you. And well, when he said that, they're like, okay, we're out. We're, we're gone. And so that's exactly what happened. They, they left and the, the other tribes, the, the other 11 tribes set up a, another king and then Rehoboam was ruling over only, only Judah. So there was a, a divided kingdom. Uh, Rehoboam reigned for about 17 years after that over, over Judah, uh, and, and he committed all kinds of idolatry. He did not lead the people. He was not like David. He did not leave the people to worship, to worship God. He let them worship idols and encouraged idolatry. He built altars and temples to false gods, um, and so he died. And then Abijam, that's where our text picks up this morning. Abijam is Rehoboam's son, so this is Solomon's grandson and David's great-grandson who is now ruling in Judah over this one tribe of Israel in a divided kingdom. And 
one of the things that we see throughout the kings is that they're always compared to David because, again, David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that was not perfect, but he was a man that served the Lord and led the people of Israel to serve the Lord. So from there on out, the, the, the kings are always kind of compared to that standard. David was the gold standard uh, of kings. And that's what, what is happening here. Abijam, it says, David's great-grandson, Solomon's grandson, was not a man after God's own heart. He was not like David. He was not good. He led the people into idolatry. But the thing that we see here in this comparison is that usually in Scripture we find David spoken of in a positive sense, but there's this one little line in here that just jumps out to me, that David was faithful all the days of his life. He served the Lord, and he didn't break away from the Lord in anything that he did except in this one matter, the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And what a matter that was. What, what a great exception of sin this was in the life of David. And that's what I want us to meditate on this morning, is just this great exception of sin. You know the story of David and Uriah, don't you? David and Bathsheba. It was the time when, when kings went out to war, and David didn't go out with his army. He stayed back at home, and, and he, he probably wasn't doing what he should have been doing even in that. He, he didn't go with the army. And one day in the afternoon, this is this is... I think meant to help us see that something's not right here. It says in the afternoon, he got up off the couch. Uh, David shouldn't have been on the couch in the afternoon, right? He probably should have been out with his army, but he gets off the couch in the afternoon. He goes out in, on, on his rooftop and he, he overlooks and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing there. And so his heart is instantly filled with lust and he, he talks to his servant, who is this woman? I, I want to meet her. I want to get to know her. And they say, well, this is Uriah's wife. You know, Uriah, uh, one of the men in your army who is risking his life right now for your kingdom, that, that Uriah. And so David sends to her anyway, knowing that and has her come to her. They, they, they are together. Uh, she conceives and has a child and throws a kink into David's plan. He was perhaps just hoping that this could be a discreet uh, breakover and, and, and that nothing, no one would be any wiser, uh, but, but it comes out because she's, she's expecting. So David, trying to plot and scheme and keep this uh, under wraps, uh, he, he sins and has Uriah come back home. Come back home and, and give me a report. And Uriah gives him a report. He says, okay, now go down to your house and spend some time with your family. But Uriah was such a loyal and faithful soldier. He's like, I'm not going home when my men are out there fighting and risking their life. I'm going to stay right here with the king, and then tomorrow I'll go back. So that's what he does. He stays at the, at the gate of, of the entrance there and does not go to his, his home to see his wife. And so David tries again. The next day he gives him a great feast, and he even gets him drunk. And he says, all right, now go home and spend some time with your wife. Again, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. And so he sends him back, and David sends with Uriah a little note in, in the hand of Uriah. This is just the, the wickedness of this is, is unbelievable. He sends with Uriah a note to the general that says, put Uriah in the front of the hottest battle, and right in the heat of the battle, I want you to pull all the men back and let Uriah be killed. And don't let this trouble you. And that's what the general does because the general obeys the king and Uriah is killed. David quickly gets Bathsheba, brings him into, uh, marries her and brings her in, into his home, hoping 
that all is forgotten, hoping that this great exception in his life, this great exception of sin can just be forgotten and he can go on, but the Lord does not allow him to forget this. The Lord does not allow him to forget it. He sends, uh, he, he sends Nathan the prophet, and Nathan tells him uh, this parable of a man who was rich, and he had great sheep, and he had all the animals that he wanted, and he had a visitor come, and, and he wanted to feed this visitor from out of town, this guest, and, uh, but he didn't want to give up one of his own lambs, so he went to his neighbor who was poor, who only had one lamb, and that lamb was really more of a pet than, than livestock, and he takes that man's lamb and kills it and feeds this guest. And David just gets enraged when he hears this story, right? Nathan has done a wonderful job of setting him up. David is like, surely whoever this man is, whoever did this is going to die. And Nathan, the prophet says, David, you are that man. That's exactly what you have done. You have all of these wives and you took this one man's wife, the, the only wife that he has, a man who is faithful to you, who's serving you, and you have committed murder, you have, you have committed adultery. Now David was uh, other than this, which is a notable exception, right? I mean, this is a great exception. Uh, other than this, David was a man who had been faithful to the Lord. Think of David. Think of uh, what, what he wrote in Scripture in, in Psalms. David was a faithful worshiper of the Lord. His, his heart was wholly true to the Lord. We see that in verse number 3 of, of chapter 15. He was wholly true to the Lord. And then in verse number 5, it says that David did not turn aside from anything. So for the rest of his life, outside of this ex main exception, uh, this great exception of sin, he had followed the Lord. He wrote many of the Psalms and encouraged other people to worship the Lord as well. Psalm 9-1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. David was obedient to the, to the law of God and, and God's command. Psalm 16 verse 7 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. In Psalm 1, he talks about the man who goes after the counsel of the wicked and the man who is rooted in the word of God. And David was the, was the example of that man who was rooted in the word of God. David was a man who had a, a, a high regard uh, for the word of God. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure, are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. David had a, a, such a great zeal for worshiping God that he wanted to build this temple for the Lord. But the Lord said, because you have been a man of war, uh, I'm not going to allow it. But rather than pout and say, well, I can't believe he won't let me. I want to build the temple for him. What does he do? He begins to gather material so that when his son Solomon becomes the king, he's ready to go to build this great temple for the Lord. David had walked faithfully with the Lord. Yet despite all of this, uh, David had a great exception of sin in his life. I think one of the things that we can take away from this uh, is, is that the, the first truth I think we see is that for us, like David, sin really ought to be the exception in our life rather than the rule. I think as Christians... What is said of David ought to be said of us. There, there are some exceptions and perhaps even some notable exceptions in, in our life. But, but on the tenor, on, on the whole, 
Our lives should be lives that are said that they followed the Lord with their whole heart and that they didn't waver. For David, this kind of gross sin was, was not the norm of his life, but was a brief, uh, a brief exception to his life that he lived for the Lord. And I think it ought to be the same way for us. Those of us, we talked this morning in Sunday school, those of us who have been born again, whose hearts have been changed, that have been cleansed from sin, for those of us who have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, the norm of our life ought to be that we're following the Lord, that we're living for Him. Yes, there are notable exceptions, but sin in our lives ought to be the exception rather than the rule. Far too often, you see people in, in, in their life, sin is not the exception. Sin is the way that they live. This is the way, this is their ordinary custom, their practice. They live in rebellion against God's law, in rebellion against what Christ wants them and has instructed them to do. But for us as believers, it ought to be the exception rather than the rule. Look at, look at uh, 1 John with me. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, because I think that's what this passage is teaching. Sin in the life of the believer ought to be the exception rather than the rule. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, that is Jesus, is talking about Jesus. Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God then makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, the problem I, I, I want to address in this is that so often churches are full of, and people, are, our, our communities are full of people who say, yes, I am a Christian. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, I am going to heaven when I die. And yet in their life, they are making a practice of sinning. Their life has not changed. The direction of their life has not changed. The Lord of their life has not changed. In no way has their life changed. And yet they believe themselves to be converted. They believe themselves to be born again. They believe themselves to be bound for an eternity in heaven. But what this passage says here is that is not the case. The, the person who has been born of God is a person who is no longer dominated by sin in their life. They're a person for whom, like David, sin is the exception rather than the rule. And yes, we all have our exceptions. Yes, we are all sinful. No, none of us is perfect. And yet there ought to be this fundamental change, shouldn't there, based on this passage? I think we see four truths here in, in 1 John. First is this, or four arguments kind of making the case for this. 
The first is in verses four through six. And that is this. If you know Jesus Christ and, and have been united to him, then a life of sin doesn't fit with that. If you know Jesus Christ in this personal relationship and, and you and you have uh, uh, been united to him, you abide in him, you've been connected to him, then a lifestyle of sin doesn't fit with that. OK, there, there's a disconnect. Something isn't right there. If, if you say, I know Christ and yet you live in sin. Read again, verses four through six. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That is uh, lawlessness in the term of being lawless as far as God's law. You know, verse five, that he appeared in order to take away sin. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to remedy the problem of sin. Jesus came to exterminate sin. And in him, there was no sin. There is no sin. So verse six says, no one who abides in him then keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So if you keep on sinning, if sin is not the exception in your life, this verse plainly says that you have not seen Christ that you do not know him. Right? That's, that's the first argument. Jesus came. His purpose in coming was to take away sin, to, to rid this world of sin. And so if you continue to live a lifestyle of disobedience, a lifestyle of lawlessness in which you reject God's law, you don't, you, you don't submit to his law, if you live that kind of lifestyle, you do not know Jesus Christ. I don't care what happened when you were eight or nine or ten at vacation Bible school. I don't, want, I don't care what happened at, vaca- at, at children's camp. I don't care how long you've been a member of the church. If you keep on sinning as a lifestyle, as a practice, you have never seen him and you do not know Christ. That's what these verses plainly state. Number two, the second argument in this is that when God declares you righteous, He actually begins to make you righteous. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Look, what I'm saying this morning is I'm not deceived. You shouldn't be deceived either. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Okay? So we know that in salvation, we're given the righteousness of Christ. It is given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. It's granted to us as a gift. But those whom God declares righteous, he begins this process we call sanctification of actually making us righteous in our life. So he's just saying here, don't be fooled. Don't be duped by the guy over here that wants to go out and get drunk every weekend and sleep around and live the way that he wants to live. But then say, yes, I'm righteous. Yes, I'm right with the Lord. Everything's good. Don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you. The person who is actually living a lifestyle of righteousness is righteous. The person who is not living a lifestyle of righteousness, now this is very complicated, a very, very difficult point. If they're not living a life of righteousness, they're not righteous. That's the point of John in verse 7. Sarcasm doesn't doesn't pick up there, does it? Okay. Uh, The third point is this. The third point is this in, in these verses. Whoever practices sin is actually aligning himself with Satan and against Christ. Whoever is practicing sin is actually aligning himself. If we're thinking in terms of of enemies, Satan and and the Lord being enemies, whoever practices sin as a lifestyle is aligning himself with Satan and against Christ, against the Lord. Look at verse number 8. It says this, whoever practices sin... um, 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came for the purpose of destroying the works of Satan, who is a sinner, who is wicked, who is one that rejects God's law. All right? So Jesus came for this purpose. We, we've got, you all understand this, we've got a battle. We've got Satan on one side. His purpose is to rebel against God, to destroy the works of God. We have Jesus Christ appearing, coming as a man on this earth with the sole purpose of destroying the works of the devil. And now whose side are we on? Like we should be able to understand it. Whose side are we on? If we're living in sin, he's saying in verse 8, you're actually, you're actually on the side of Satan. Right? If you are following Christ and seeking to live a life of righteousness and put away sin out of your life, okay, now you're aligning yourself with, with Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. He's of, uh, on the devil's side. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if you're just practicing the works of the devil, you're not on the side of the Lord. Plain and simple. One more point, and it's simple. It is this, you act like your daddy. You act like whoever your daddy is. Now, uh, for me, sometimes that's a, you know, something I, I regret because you see things sometimes in your father and you think, I hate that. And then you start to do the very same thing, especially as you get older, right? And I think all of us men probably uh, find ourselves at, at thinking that in, in some moment. I love my dad, and there's so much good that I want to emulate in, in him, and I'm, I'm thankful for him. But there are certain things that, that I see in my dad that I'm like, I don't want to do that, but I, you act like your daddy. It's in, it's in your DNA. It's in your nature. It's, it's who you are. Well, the same is true spiritually. You act like your father, whoever your father is, has an influence on your life, on your nature. So look at verses 9 and 10 of 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If, if sin is the practice in your life, if that's the way that you live, God ain't your daddy, all right? Because he doesn't act that way, all right? And if you've been born of him, you're not going to act that way either. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. It's not just a ought to. It's not just a you shouldn't do that anymore. It's a you can't do that anymore because your nature's been changed. God's seed abides in you. You have been given a new nature when you become a Christian and you cannot continue to make a practice of sin if God's nature, if his seed abides in you. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so it's, it's clear we can do a DNA test, a spiritual DNA test. Is God your father? Well, what does your life look like? Is it a life of wickedness? Is it a life of rebellion against God? God's not your father. If, if your life is a, a, a pattern of obedience, a pattern of seeking to follow the Lord, even if it's a broken pattern, even if there are struggles, and like David, there are exceptions, sometimes some notable exceptions in your life, uh, then, then God is your father. That's, that's what this passage is teaching. There are other passages that we could look at Hebrews 10 teaches that, that we will, as believers, we will not 
not we should not we will not continue to make a, a willful habitual practice of sin Hebrews 10 26 says for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume our adversaries you could look at Romans 6 as well but but the the Bible's clear. We just, we just cannot have a view that says, and sadly, too many Southern Baptist churches have had this view, come and be a member and be a Christian and live like hell and you're going to heaven. It's okay because you asked Jesus in your heart. That doesn't fit. That's not what the Bible teaches. The second thing that we need to see, I think, and just a good truth that we find from the life of David in this these words that he followed the Lord except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And that is this. Although sin should be the exception in our life, sometimes those exceptions have great consequences. Sometimes, although your life on the whole, the general fear on the main, your life is a life of following the Lord. When we allow these exceptions of sin into our life, even though they may be brief, even though they may not, uh, be uh, de descriptive of the, the entirety of our life, yet when we allow them in, we are opening ourselves up to great, great danger. There, there are great life-altering consequences sometimes that come about when we allow sin into our life. Think again about David. He followed the Lord all the days of his life. He wrote all of these psalms. He, he wanted to build the temple. He loved the Lord. He instructed the people to serve the Lord. He was a man of the law, rooted in the word of God. And yet he allowed this brief moment in his life to, to get away from the Lord and have this exception. And think about all of the great consequences that came in David's life as a result of this little brief period of time. There, there are so many, first of all, the, the, the first and perhaps even the greatest consequence was that David displeased the Lord. David loved the Lord. And so this was a, this was a great thing. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, it says this, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her into the house after Uriah was dead, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David displeased the Lord. You know, it's interesting in that passage, that's verse 27. In verse 25, I told you that, that, um, that Joab was, was the general who was in charge of this. And David had said to him in verse 25, he says, don't let this thing displease you. He says, the battle takes one person now and, an, and another time it takes somebody else. It's just, it just happens. Don't let it displease you. Two verses later, uh, Joab, Joab may, may not have been displeased by this, but the Lord was displeased by David's action. The thing that the Lord that David had done displeased the Lord. And then when Nathan speaks to, to David, it says this in 2 Samuel 12, 9, he, he had despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in his sight. And then verse 14, Nathan said to him, by this action, you have utterly scorned the Lord. Now that's for David. I mean, for some people, the, the person that doesn't know the Lord, the person that is not converted, they don't care about what the Lord thinks. They're, they're not concerned that they displease the Lord. But, but for David, a man who had a tender conscience, a man who loved the Lord, who, who had intimate fellowship with the Lord, those words would have broken him. You have utterly scorned the Lord 
in these actions, the fact that the Lord is displeased by what you have done. And that's just another thing that we should know as believers, sin ought to bother us, okay? We should not have that callous attitude like, leave me alone, don't talk, don't talk to me about my sin. Sin ought to break you. It, it ought to cause you to, to be concerned the fact that you have displeased the Lord. But not only was this one of the, the great consequences in David's life, there's also the fact that it, it just break, it brought great calamity into David's life. For the rest of his life, David was living in light in the shadow of this sin that he, he had committed. And all of the consequences of this brief moment, this great exception in his life, that they plagued him for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. This momentary sin plagued him. You could think about the fact that there was constant fighting in, in his life. David had just gotten to the point where he had been established as the king. He's defeating the enemies of God. He's defeating these Canaanite people and, and, and their enemies. And God is giving him victory. And God is blessing the nation. And it's just as he has been established as the king and he's starting to Take it easy. He's having a little bit of success. You know, I don't think I'll go out to this battle. I'm just going to hang out here. It's right then that, that he commits this in, in the rest of his life. There's turmoil. It, there is turmoil. His own son, Absalom, tries to steal the kingdom from him. This was a result of God's uh, punishment, of, of God's discipline in his life. Absalom tries to steal the kingdom. And here is David as an older man having to flee out of Jerusalem, having to leave his own home. He had run when he was younger. He had to run from Saul, but he was a young man then. He, he, he was young, he had energy, and, and, and God hadn't made him the king yet, but he knew God was going to protect him and make him the king. He had been established by his, as the king, just as you think, all right, life is going to be good. Now Absalom, his son, comes and tries to steal the kingdom away, and David is forced to run and flee for his own life. And then, as a result of this too, as, as a result of this rebellion, Absalom dies. And even though, even though Absalom had done something so bad as tried to steal the king, they, this is still David's son. And it broke David's heart that, that, that Joab killed him. Uh, he experienced great grief over this. David was also publicly disgraced, this man of God, this man who had encouraged other people to worship and serve the Lord. But, but 2 Samuel, God says this to David, for you did it secretly, but I will, talking about his, his judgment, his discipline, I will do it before all Israel. And we're still here today talking about all the great consequences that David reaped as a result of this. Sin brings shame into our life. Perhaps one of the greatest things for David, though, that this child that, uh, that Bathsheba had conceived lost his life. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 14, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child born to you shall die. And we know from the story that David is broken by that. He is weeping and fasting and praying that God would remove his hand of discipline, that this child would not die. But the child does. The child does die. It brings great consequence. This is what we need to understand. Some of you are meddling around with sin. And you think, I'm, I'm in Christ. I have Christ's righteousness. I'm good. I know I'm going to heaven. 
I can dabble in this sin and I can participate in this sin over here and everything will be okay. Well, listen, number one, you're displeasing the Lord and that ought to bother you. But number two, the, the consequences that could potentially come about because your sin right now that you're just dabbling around in that you think is going to be okay, the, those consequences could be life-altering consequences. Don't take that, don't take that lightly. The Bible says in Hebrews that God disciplines every child that he has. If you truly are God's child and you're straying off and wandering off into sin, you are inviting the disciplining hand of the Lord. And listen, here's something we need to be, we need to be aware of. God is concerned about getting you to heaven. God's got an eternal plan for you. His plan for you right now is not just to make you comfortable and make sure your life is good. All right. And because of that, sometimes he will bring great discipline in, uh, on your life in this life so that he can be sure to get you where he's going, uh, where, where he wants you to be. And so when we dabble in sin, when we begin to stray away from the Lord, yes, we have forgiveness. Yes, First John 1 9 is true. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's absolutely true. Yes, Jesus has paid for our sins. But yes, if you're a child of God, God is a good father who disciplines his children. And sometimes that discipline is great. Sometimes that discipline, like the life of David, is severe discipline. It was in the life of David. So you might be, you might be tempted to kind of minimize the impact of sin in your life, but, but you need to understand that it can be very serious. You, you, your little exception of sin, this little thing that you think you can keep doing, all the while you're serving the Lord, that little exception of sin may wreck your life. That little exception of sin may be what drives your children away from the Lord. Some of you who have children and they see the hypocrisy in your life. And how often is that the case? Kids say, you know, I grew up in church, but my parents were the biggest hypocrites ever. And you might be saved and you might get to heaven and, and you might not fall away from the Lord. God might, be, might, might get you there. But your little exception of sin might be what, what drives your children away from faith in Christ. I just see their life. And, you know, I, I don't want whatever they got because they are hypocrites. Maybe what drives your children away from the Lord. Your, your exception. Uh, we see this. I'm, I, I'm drawing from Scripture now. Your, your exception can bring about physical illness even. Sometimes this is the discipline of the Lord that he brings about physical illness. Now, I want us to be careful. We don't know. Uh, I'm not the judge to say what that is. And, and often that is not the case. Often we just live in a fallen, broken world. People get sick. That happens. It's part of life. But there are moments, and we see this in Scripture, there are moments where even physical illness is a direct act of God of his disciplining hand in the life of his children. We see this in 1 Corinthians. It's very clear. 1 Corinthians Paul writes to them and he's addressing sin in the congregation. He says, because of this, some of you are weak and ill and some of you sleep. In other words, death had even come upon some of them because they had rebelled against God. Think Ananias and Sapphira who had rebelled against God. That, that can be the case. Your exception, you think it's a small thing? You, 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 I can still get to heaven Jesus still loves me. Everything, God will forgive me my sin. But your exception that you're allowing may cost you your marriage. Your, your sin that you think is small, that you think Jesus will overlook, your sin may tear apart the church of Jesus Christ. If your exception is, is not corrected, it may bring to your life, uh, your life to an untimely end. 
The Bible talks about a sin that is unto death in 1 John. There's a sin that is unto death. I think that's talking about the disciplining hand of the Lord. When we repeatedly refuse to repent and turn back to the Lord, I think there are times when the Lord brings death into the life of His believers because of their sin. As a discipline. Now, there's one final point this morning, and that is this. I think that we see in this exception of of David. And that is God's grace. God's grace can work through and overcome your exceptions. God's grace is greater. We sing that. uh, I don't know if we've sung that here before, but grace that is greater than all of our sins. God's forgiving grace. God's restoring grace is a grace that is greater than all of our exceptions, than all of our sins. And we ought to praise God for that. We, we ought to praise the Lord for that. We ought to praise the Lord that, yes, First John 1.9 is true. That, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even the worst sinners, even the worst sin can be forgiven. I mean, when you stop and think about the impact and, and, and the, the consequences that David had in his life because of, you think about the greatness of his sin. This is murder that David committed. This is adultery. Like We're talking the big ones, you know? These are really bad, really heinous sins. God forgives him. It almost makes you mad a little bit, doesn't it? I can't believe. What, what if you were somebody in Uriah's family? How would you feel about the Lord forgiving David? It would almost make you mad, right? I cannot believe he would forgive that guy. He had our cousin Uriah killed and he stole his wife. Can you believe that? Yes, that's the God that we serve. It's a God who who extends grace to the most vile, most wicked people like David and like you and me. And, And that's the kind of God that we need. That's the kind of gospel we need because we are all great sinners. God's grace is wonderful and, and it's grace. It's great. Not only did it wasn't as if God just forgave David of this sin, but God continued to use David even after this moment. That's just mind blowing to think about. Uh, it says in Second in Samuel, chapter 12, verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. That's after this child died. Uh, that was a result, a consequence of his sin. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. The Lord loved Solomon and sent a message by Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. What a What an amazing thing. David didn't deserve this, right? David is not only forgiven of his sin, although he's reaping some of the discipline of the Lord in his life, but but the Lord blesses him with another son from the wife that he stole, right? The, The wife that he had committed adultery with. God gives him another son and makes this son one of the great kings of Israel. One of the wisest men who ever lived, Solomon gives him great wisdom and Solomon builds a temple for the Lord and Solomon expands the kingdom of Israel, expands its borders and does all of these great things. And God did that through David, this murderous adulterer in Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. What an amazing thing. What a forgiving God. What, 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 what a great thing that God would restore this messed up, 
horrible situation and continue to work his plan through wicked people like David. What a great thing for us that he, that he does that as well. What, what a wonderful thing that God can use us despite our exceptions and, and some of those exceptions that are so notable, that are so great. But not only would David's son, David's son Solomon build this temple and expand Israel and all of these blessings, but this is the line through which our Savior, the Messiah, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ comes. When you go to the Gospel of Matthew and you look at the lineage of, of Jesus, this is what you find at one point. And Jesse was the father of David, the king. And David was the, fa- the, the father of Solomon the wife by the wife of Uriah. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew includes that in there. And isn't that like a funny thing? I mean, most of the time, you know, when we've got those secrets in our family history, we try to bury them. But that's not the way the word of God does. It shows it shows us, God's people, in all of their sinfulness. And it, it puts it out front so that we know there are no perfect people. This Messiah that's been born, this son of God, is the son of David. It's Solomon, you know, by the wife of Uriah. He still calls him the wife of Uriah. God took this messed up, horrible situation, this great exception of sin committed by David, and he used that to bring about the Messiah, to bring about our Savior. What a a great God. What a gracious God. What a forgiving God we serve. Let me just say this, three application points really quick here as we close this morning. First, if you're here, and sin is the rule in your life rather than the exception. You need to be born again. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If your heart has never been changed, that's why you keep living in rebellion against God. Your heart needs to be changed. And, and with that new heart change comes a change of desire. Now you want to serve the Lord rather than live in sin. So if you are comfortable in your sin, you need that heart change to happen to you. And, and I would just encourage you to pray that the Lord would give you a new heart. The second thing is this, believer, uh, if you are here this morning and, and you've been treating sin as a light matter, don't do that. Yes, Jesus can forgive you. Yes, you can still make it to heaven. Yes, God's, God's grace is wonderful and great. But, but just think about the great consequences, the discipline of God that you are inviting in your life. It's a foolish thing to persist in sin. And thirdly, this morning, if you are here and you are perhaps weighed down by gr- regrets, and you think there are things that I have done and I don't think God can use me anymore. You know, I used to serve, I used to teach, and I used to uh, be active in the church. And man, then I had this, I got divorced, or I committed this sin, or I ha- this happened to me. And I've just, you know, I'm still serving the Lord, but I'm kind of on the sidelines. I'm kind of a broken vessel. I'm not going to be used by God. But listen, God uses broken vessels. He uses broken people. If, if he didn't use broken people, I wouldn't be up here this morning. If he didn't use people who had great sin, great exceptions of sin, I wouldn't be a, a preacher. None of us would be here. And so don't let anyone here think that, that this past sin that you've committed or some way that you've fallen, especially since maybe it was a public thing, that that means you have to kind of stay away, stay out of the limelight, don't do too much, don't get too involved. That is not the case this morning. God uses sinners. He has restoring grace. He has forgiving grace. And I would just encourage you to get back in the game. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your grace, grace indeed that is greater than all of our sins, than all of our exceptions. We thank you for the blood of your, Jesus, of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.